We are back in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to ask Rory Woodbury to come up and uh, read Scripture for us. And as she comes up, I want to just give you a little intro into where we're headed this morning. Uh, We have entered into just the first chapter. We haven't even gotten past it yet. And at the start of his Gospel, Mark tells us quite plainly that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. In the midst of our broken world, the world's not the way that it's supposed to be, in the midst of severed relationships that we have with God, with our creator, and with each other, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for to save us, to help us. As Jesus comes out of the desert, Mark wants us to see that when he goes into the waters of the Jordan River and he's baptized by John the Baptist, he's purposefully entering into our story, into our lives. And we saw that last week. And also, Mark doesn't stop there. He wants us to see that as Jesus comes up out of the water and goes into the the wilderness, that Jesus, in facing the devil and the temptations that are there in the wilderness, Jesus not only is identifying with our story, but Jesus can and will rewrite our story. The story not only of creation, but of our lives. This is the good news that from the get-go, Mark wants us to understand. But as we return to the gospel today, as Rory is about to read to us from, again, chapter one, we're going to learn that knowing this good news is not enough. We must enter into this good news. We must enter into this new chapter if we're going to experience this happy ending of an otherwise tragic story. As Jesus himself will say, he will call us to follow him. Good morning. Good morning. Um, if you can join me by opening your Bibles, um, if you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 694, and we're looking at Mark 1, 16 through 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus' public ministry begins as John's ministry, John the Baptist, ends as he's arrested. And what's significant about this shift in Mark, still in the first chapter, is where before the call to follow Jesus had come through others, Jesus now extends the invitation and challenge of discipleship himself. He turns to us. Now, if you're, if you're well-read in the Bible at all or even just halfway familiar, you'll, you should notice something here when Jesus begins to speak. In the past... When people would come speaking on behalf of God, the prophets, for example, they would call the people to follow God. If you wanted to just put it into two words, what was the continual message of the prophets? It was follow God. But you'll notice that Mark tells us when Jesus arrives on the scene, he doesn't say follow God. He says, follow me. That's profound. That's, again, pointing to there's something different going on here. And in the midst of something profound, we have something simple, a very beautiful picture, one that I don't have a problem imagining. Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew casting their nets into the water. And Mark, being very, very succinct, tells us that Jesus sees them, he calls them, and immediately they leave their nets and they follow him. And not missing a beat, almost as if it happens right after, Mark tells us that Jesus sees James and his brother John, who are also fishing with their father Zebedee and his hired help, and they are called by Jesus, and Mark 
immediately, there's that word again, they leave their father and they follow Jesus. Now, if you didn't have the other gospels, if we didn't have three more gospels that give us different perspectives on what happened when Jesus was here, when he lived, died, and was resurrected, if we only had what Mark gives us, we would think that Jesus is just walking by the Sea of Galilee and happens to come across some guys who are fishing and says, hey, follow me. And, and many times that's how this story is presented. But the truth is we have other gospel accounts so that we can get different perspectives on what happens here. Jesus calls these men to follow him, yes, and they begin to walk away from what they're doing and follow him, but it's not as, um, it's not as sudden as it might seem. There, the other gospels give us some background that's important. In John's gospel, for example, we learn that this wasn't Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Jesus first encounters Simon Peter, Andrew, and John in Judea, where they were disciples of John the Baptist. Andrew and John, in fact, spent an evening with Jesus, that, and, and they were so moved by their time with him that they went and told their brothers that they had found the Messiah. And then, the, the, from what we get in John and elsewhere, they spent some time with Jesus before returning to Galilee. Hear that. They spent some time with Jesus before returning to Galilee. They apparently returned to their work and their families and Jesus came seeking after them. This is significant. And what I want you to kind of maybe see this story differently than we often tell it or hear it is that what Mark is presenting here, in other words, is not the conversion of these men. He's presenting their calls to discipleship. And I started this sermon series by talking about, not in the history of the church, but in the modern age of the church, we seem to be creating a distinction between Christians and disciples. And that so much so that we, we, a Christian is not the same thing as a disciple, the way we're practically living it out. And in some respects, if we were to put that lens here, that's sort of an example we can see. To this point, before Mark tells us anything, James, John, Andrew, and Simon Peter are Christians. They had come to know Jesus as the promised Messiah. They had accepted him as disciples of John the Baptist as the one they had been waiting for. To put it in our modern vernacular, they had accepted Jesus into their heart. They had said, yep, Jesus is it. Jesus is the one that we're waiting for. But what Mark shows us here is how they become more than Christians. More than just a couple of guys who accept Jesus as the Messiah. Here they become disciples, answering the call to follow Jesus, leaving the security of their careers, leaving the comfort of their families and their friends and becoming his students. Come follow me. Three simple words and yet so deep. Come, follow me. The emphasis is on leaving and learning. Following Jesus, it appears, means leaving something behind, as Mark tells us twice how they left things to follow Jesus. And this is not an isolated theme to the first chapter. It's actually throughout the Gospel of Mark, this idea of leaving things behind. In the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to give you a little preview. We'll get there in the weeks ahead. In the Gospel of Mark, several people will leave things behind in order to follow Jesus. When Mark will tell us of the, coming, uh, the calling of Levi, the tax collector, Mark will note that Levi got up and followed Jesus. Don't miss the subtlety there. He got up and followed Jesus, even though at the time he was on the job. Levi was working for the Roman government and he got up and left to serve the kingdom. Later on, a demon-possessed man who is healed will be willing to leave his home and his family and his friends to follow Jesus. And, and, and against the normal flow of things, Jesus will refuse to let this man follow him personally. 
but he will still call on him to follow when he tells this man what the Lord has done for you, share it among your family and your friends. Still further on, and we're going to be a ways before we get here, still further on, we're going to encounter the blind man named Bartimaeus who will seek healing from Jesus. And in coming to Jesus, Mark will tell us he throws off his cloak, leaving it behind. Once Bartimaeus receives his sight, Mark will describe it this way. He will tell us that Bartimaeus followed Jesus on the way. So consistently throughout the gospel, Mark illustrates that following Jesus always requires that we leave something behind. And so this morning, as Jesus is calling us to follow him, I'd like us to think about what we might need to leave behind. Now, when I ask that or I put that out there, some things I I think, some things that we need to leave behind are pretty easy for us to recognize. They may not be easy for us to let go of, but they're pretty easy for us to recognize. To follow Jesus, we need to leave behind sins, our brokenness, our bad attitudes, our selfish ways. Those things are probably easy for us to see, but they may not be as easy to let go of. But what I want to focus on are the other things that we need to leave behind. The other things that are not as obvious that in fact are far less obvious and therefore more difficult for us to see. And I want to focus specifically on two examples, probably the most significant examples that Mark gives us right here. Mark tells us that Simon and Andrew were casting their nets into the sea and then says they were fishermen. Now, you've, I've said this before, Mark is very, very concise, and yet you could almost, he almost has a tendency to be a little bit redundant. He states the obvious. And so at times, Mark will say things and you'll be kind of like, Did you really need to tell us that? Here's an example. You know, Simon and Andrew were casting their nets into the water. They were fishermen. Really? I couldn't have figured that one out. Why else would they be casting their nets into the sea? Mark is not just being redundant, though. When he does this, especially since he's so precise and so quick in what he says, when he's repeating something, when he's saying they were fishermen, there's something more going on here than just the description of what they were doing that day. Mark wants us to internalize that fishing is what these men did for a living. It's the way they spent their time. It's the way they supported their families. It's what these men knew and probably what they loved. Being a fisherman, in other words, was not just an activity. It was part of their identity. If you asked them who they were, if you came up to them, they would have probably started by telling you what they did. Hence, Mark says they were fishermen. In other words, their work was not just how they supported their families. Their work was part of their identity. And beloved, we're no different. When I introduce myself to someone, I often include, I can't think of a time when I haven't, I often include that I'm a pastor. That's what I do. But in a sense, it's also who I am. It's not just a job for me. It's a part of my identity. It's what I know. It's what I love. It's what I spend a great bulk of my time doing. And it's the same for all of us. Whether you get paid for the work that you do or not, the work that we do, the way that we spend our time and our energy cannot help but become a part of who we are, a part of our identity. So the significance of this is that Jesus asks these men to walk away from that, to take on a new identity. He says to them, stop what you're doing and follow me. And that's a surprise. But what comes next, as Mark gives it to us, is an even bigger surprise. They leave their nets and they follow him. Just, just so you can sit in this a little bit. I mean, back in, these day, in the time, fishing was a major industry in Galilee. 
And, and interestingly enough, in times not unlike our own, it was, there was a lot of turmoil and turbulence, a lot of instability, a lot of social upheaval. And in the midst of a lot of things that were unstable, one of the things you could count on was fishing. Fishing was a steady industry. Fishing was a profession that ordered a consistent income. So think about the significance of the willingness of these men to forsake such stability. It's remarkable. Can you imagine this story being retold in our own day, in our own time, when many people are losing their jobs or being cut back or can't find a job to have a job and to leave it behind? Economic stability is apparently no longer their chief purpose for living. Their line of work is no longer their primary source of their identity. But then Jesus goes on and tells us how Mark goes on and tells us how Jesus comes to James and John, the sons of, Zeb- of Zebedee. And, and, and what's significant here is something else that's very significant to our identity. James and John are identified by their relationship to their father. And that's another important part of who we are, our family and our friends. Yes, I am a pastor, but I'm also a husband. I'm also a father. I'm also a brother and a son. My family, I'm sure like yours, has shaped me. My family has sustained me. My love for them cannot be adequately expressed. They have my deepest loyalty. I'm sure you're like me in saying that most of us would give up our lives for our family. Some of us have. Some of us may be doing so right now. And yet James and John, Jesus sees them, sons of their father. He calls them to follow him and they leave their father. Jesus says to them, engage in a bigger sense of family. Later, Jesus will put the invitation and challenge in relationship to family this way. He'll say, whoever does the will of my father in heaven, that's my mother, my father, my brother, or my sister. What Mark is highlighting for us here in terms of things we have to leave behind are the two things I think that we often value the most, our work and our family. They're the things that we often value the most because these are the two aspects of our lives that are often the most important parts of our identity. And yet, when Jesus calls, these men leave their nets. They leave their work. They leave their families seemingly behind to follow him. You know, we hear this story in Sunday school and we make it so light and fluffy that I think we we miss some of the urgency and intensity of what Mark is giving us here. Come, follow me. And they dropped their nets and they left. The sense of urgency and commitment that Mark describes in this encounter between Jesus and these four brothers, if you strip away the Sunday school veneer, it reflects a radical, unconditional call as well as an absolute, unconditional response. Jesus calls and they follow. Simple, but deep. Can we be honest? I mean, I'll be honest if no one else wants to be honest. What I see here, what I read here makes me uncomfortable. And if I'm really honest, if I can say this in church and none of you are going to judge me for saying it, if I can really be honest, what I see here strikes me as frankly a rather unreasonable expectation in terms of my life. And if, if that's not where you're at, I can tell you that in preparing for this sermon, it was a delight to me and a reassurance to me that I was not alone in feeling this way. Because, you know, when you prepare for sermons, you consult commentaries. And commentaries are written by scholars who devote their lives to studying these, these texts in the ancient language and providing nuggets of wisdom. And what was delightful to me, not in a good way, 
but just in the sense of solidarity, was commentators, as I read, uh, read commentators on this passage, they were again and again wrestling with something that perhaps Mark is not telling us. They were looking for ways to make this call less radical. And, and again, it's exactly where my mind wants to go when I just take it at, at face value, when I just take it the way Mark gives it, I want to go where they go. You know, maybe... Jesus prepared them for this call. I mean, if Jesus had met them previously, maybe they got a call committee together and kind of talked about what this was going to look like. Maybe, maybe um, he told them exactly what was going to happen and what would be expected of them. Maybe they got together a job description. Okay, this is the position we're looking for. We're looking for a disciple. And these are the qualifications and skills we're looking for. And maybe they passed out those job descriptions and let everybody know how many meetings they'd be expected to attend, um, how many visits they would have to be making, how many sermons they'd have to preach, what would be the level of commitment, and then, of course, what would be their contribution to the cause. The financial piece is big. How much do I actually have to pay to be a part of this? You know, I I would love if that were there. That, That makes sense to me. That's the world that I live in. But that's not what the scriptures say. That's not what any of the gospels say. Mark intentionally makes the calling, I think, stark. Real simple and yet real deep. Jesus says, follow me. And immediately they follow. There is no explanation. Darn it. How do you do that? Why? Why are you following? What did he tell you? What did he say? I mean, mind you, it's Jesus has maybe done a little teaching, but the, the miracles haven't come yet. Nothing's happened. What, how do you do that? There's no explanation. And there's no negotiation. There's no negotiation. James and John don't say to Jesus, you know, could we just pray about this for a few days and then we'll get back to you? That's a good Christian response right there. That's what most of us would say. We'd say, well, you know, you should really pray about this before you decide. And I don't want to take that away because I think that's still a valid way to approach things. But I would love it if Mark could have thrown that in here. He called them and they said, you know, let's go home and we're going to pray about it. It's no, come and follow me. And they immediately, immediately, they let drop their nets and followed him. Where I came away from on this, and, and I'm saying this to, to myself as much as I'm saying it to you, is that it's moments like these when I realize two things that are separate that I want to bring together. We exist, and the church has always been this way, whether you like it or not, it is what it is. We have existed as the body of Christ on a spectrum of belief. We read and struggle with how we read these scriptures differently. From the very beginning, we have had, and it will continue to be this way, differences in terms of how we interpret Jesus' agenda, how we understand his description of his Father's kingdom, how, how we understand how the kingdom's supposed to be realized in our lives and in this world. And I'm here to tell you, even if it may frustrate you, we can and will continue to exist on a bandwidth of interpretation about these things. A bandwidth that ranges from conservative to moderate to liberal. In our understanding, in our theology of Christ and his kingdom. And I know many of us don't like it. I know we tend to really fight well about it. We like to fight about it. But the reality is, and I I believe this, this is how it's going to be until Jesus takes us home or brings us or comes back. There is a spectrum of how we read these scriptures together when it relates to those things. But here's the thing, and this is where I think Mark is brilliant, and this is where Mark is brilliant in being brief. There is no spectrum in terms of our discipleship. There can be no varying level of our commitment to Christ. We can argue about how we interpret his agenda, what the kingdom's supposed to be like, and how it's actually all we want till the cows come home, but there is no spectrum in terms of our commitment to follow him. Mark is going to put out here 
he puts it out here now and will continue to put out there, it's not possible to truly follow Christ if we're only willing to make a partial or gradual commitment to him. If we're only willing to make him one of many things that are important to us, then we may be a Christian, but we are not a disciple. With Mark, it's this stark. We're either in or we're out. So we can be moderate in our theology. And you're going to encounter people who are, in fact, across the spectrum on their theology when they encounter Jesus. And Jesus, in the midst of answering them, will always come back to the thing that there is no spectrum on. Who do you say that I am? Follow me. We can't be moderate in our commitment to Christ. (laughs) So so what does that mean? So what does that mean? I mean, I'm sitting where you are. Uh, Does that mean Jesus wants us to leave our work? I mean, we're supposed to quit our jobs. Does Jesus mean we're supposed to leave our families? Do I have to be some kind of fanatic to follow Jesus? I mean, that's kind of, one way you can read this, this seems pretty fanatical, you know? Call, follow. I want to be cautious here too. Because in the midst of our struggle with this passage, like I said, it's been commonplace, even though we don't practically live it out this way, it's been commonplace for us to teach or to understand what Mark describes here as a model. And we sort of lift it up as sort of the highest value in the body of Christ. These are the super Christians. You know, the model is that we dramatically, enthusiastically, and seemingly unthinkingly leave everything behind to follow Jesus. I mean, that's the pinnacle But I want to suggest to you that that's not what Mark is presenting here. I want to say to you that the rest of Scripture will back this up. There's a huge difference between actually making a timely decision and sitting on the fence. There's a difference between making a timely decision and abruptly making an ill-thought decision. Making a real and even sacrificial choice, a dramatic change in one's life, is not necessarily the same thing as fanaticism. This is not fanaticism that's being presented here. Because Jesus himself will later tell us that while we need to hear the urgency of the call to follow him, Jesus will also say we need to sit down and count the cost of following him. So, breathe a little easier. Although most of us are not called to leave our jobs or to separate ourselves from our families, the message is, the point is, what we are all called to do is ground our identity in Christ. And let's go back and look at the two examples that Mark gives us, work and family. Work is, is of God. God created us to work. Work can be a wonderful blessing. There is nothing, I think, more rewarding, more fulfilling than having and finding the right place to use the gifts, the skills, the resources, and the time that God has given us. But if we base our identity on our work, if we think our work is what gives us value as a person, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment. Not everybody in this room, myself included, can relate to this, but some of us are struggling in the midst of retirement. We, we puff up retirement as being this fabulous thing, but the reality is retirement's a very, very difficult thing if your identity comes from your work. If you've spent 30 or 40 years at a job where that has been how you primarily understand who you are and all of a sudden that's no longer there, who are you? What defines who you are if that's not there anymore? And that's why we try to kind of make retirement, we try to make it look nicer by talking about how all this free time you have and all these great trips you get to take. And that's just filling the space of, I don't know who I am anymore. Because this is what defined me. 
And it doesn't just have to be retirement. That's the other thing about the times in which we live. The last couple of years of this economic crisis have taught us that none of us will know when we will find ourselves without work. It's not just about waiting for retirement. In the midst of what's going on in our economy, many of us are in situations where we've lost our jobs or been laid off or been cut, reduced hours. We never know. We live in times when we never know when we will, will be downsized, let go, or injury or illness might take us out of the workforce. And if you've encountered that or if you fear that, part of what's behind that is, who am I? When interview after interview, there's no callbacks, when no one seems to be picking up on your resume, if you're defining yourself through your work, it's not just that you can't provide for yourself, you're beginning to question your value and your worth. Who are you? Work can be rewarding, but if we depend upon it for our security and our sense of identity, we will find ourselves sooner or later disappointed. And what Mark is bringing out, what Jesus' call is about, is that whether we leave our jobs or not, we lose them, we're downsized, a disciple's identity, a follower of Christ is no longer a fisherman, a tax collector. A disciple of Christ is nothing other than a follower of Jesus. That is our primary identity. We are children of God. We are followers of Christ. When's the last time that's the first thing you said when someone asked who you were, let alone when that was the first thing you thought of? But what Jesus wants us to understand, if we follow him, that's our primary identity. We are a child of God and we are a follower of him. And the reason why that's so important is when that is our primary identity, that challenges us to resist the temptation to make our work the defining element of our sense of who we are. Work is tough, but let's talk about family. And now let's really cross a line. Let's really cross a line in terms of our identity. Let's really po push some buttons for all of us in this room. What's being demonstrated here in Mark is that our families, in this call, the other side of this is that our families can become false idols. I, I imagine that many of us are sitting here and, and think, and, it's a good, and I think I would agree, it's a good thing to lift up our spouse, our children, to honor our parents. We should encourage and value the people that God's brought into our life. But there is a difference, a significant one, between lifting up and encouraging our spouse, our children, our parents, our friends, and putting them on a pedestal and making them the center of our existence. When we do that, when we place anyone, all of them, in the center of our existence, we have a problem. And it, and it can be defined this way. While many of us marry up, <laughs> right? None of us marry a perfect person. While many of us have beautiful children, <laughs> just saying, I'm a little biased, but yes. It's a lot better without the mask, by the way, Emma. Thank you, that was creeping me out. While many of us have beautiful children, none of us have perfect children. Here's the thing. When we place anyone in that center place, when we place anyone in the center of our existence, we may not consciously think this or intend it, but what we are doing is we are expecting them, we are demanding those people to be perfect. We are placing them in the place that only one is perfect in our lives, and that is God. And if we place anyone in that place of perfection that only God can occupy, we will be disappointed. If we make our relationship with our spouse, our children, or any other person the center of our identity, we will suffocate those relationships. They will end up becoming toxic rather than healthy in our lives. 
Our family and our friends, please hear this, are wonderful blessings. They're gifts of God. They're a means of God's grace in our lives. But they cannot become our God or they will crucify us. Or worse, we will crucify them because they disappoint, because they're not perfect. What Jesus is saying here in the call, come and follow me, Jesus is saying, put me first. Put me first. Make me your first and highest commitment and your work and your family will come after me. That may sound harsh. I, I, you're not alone right now if you're, just, if you're back where I was going, this is just not a realistic expectation. I have real problems with this. It may sound harsh, but if we continue on and follow Jesus, at least through the gospel of Mark, what you're going to see is there's actually great freedom in this. Great freedom in this invitation and challenge. Freedom not just for us, but for our jobs and for our families too. It's actually better, it's actually healthier for our family and for our work if they take their proper place in our lives rather than getting crushed by the weight of expectations. Getting crushed by needs that only God can fill. Jesus is saying, look to me for help. Look to me to give you direction and give meaning to your life. Look to me, follow me, and let your work and your love for your family grow out of your relationship with me. That is a profound shift. It's almost a 360, but for any of us who've experienced it, it is life-changing. Not just for us, but in the places where we work and for the people who we share this life with. It's life-changing. And just in case you're still going to, and some of us are really close to the scriptures, and you're going to go, yeah, I think you're reading in. You know, I think, it's, I think it's a huge commit. I think they had to leave everything. I think they had to leave everything in terms of their identity. But I don't think they had to leave everything the way that we often make this text. If, so if you're still fixated on selling everything, Peter will later say, we gave up everything to follow you. What do I make of that? If we read carefully and pay attention as we go through the gospels, Mark and the rest, you'll notice that these men did not forfeit all their possessions. They did not completely leave their families and they did not totally abandon their jobs. So for some of us, we're going, others of us are like, oh, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's top shelf, man. This is hardcore. Okay, just to show you that I'm not making this up, just 10 verses after they're told to, to leave their nets, we're then told by Mark that the disciples went to the home of Simon and Andrew, where Simon's mother-in-law lived and presumably his wife and children as well. Also, the Gospels will make repeated reference to traveling by boat on the Sea of Galilee. I wonder where those came from. It seems fair to assume that the boats belonged to one or more of the fishermen turned disciples. And that's substantiated by the fact that Peter and several others are back in, the, back in the fishing business again after Christ's death. They didn't just stumble into it. Beloved, the real point is not what they left behind. And that's where we get fixated. The real point is that they followed Jesus. These disciples physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually allowed their identity their understanding of who they were, as well as their status and worth, their understanding of what the purpose of their life was to primarily be determined in relationship to Jesus. That's the point. So for most of us, Jesus doesn't call us to leave our work or be separated from our family. While there can be some exceptions to this, most of us can follow Jesus, live our commitment to Christ, and be disciples through our current work and activities and through our love and commitment to our families. 
God's placed you where he's placed you for a reason. If you've truly sought after God, then where you are, you are because God's put you there. It's simply this. Are you thinking that you got yourself there? Are you thinking you've earned this on your own? Or do you think that God's provided this for you? And if you understand that God's provided it for you and placed you there, then doesn't it make sense to continue to operate out of that space of first God and then everything else will follow? Because after all, he provided it in the first place. That's just, that's discipleship. Follow the one who brought you to where you are. I mean, again, if you, read it, if you read it again in chapter one, what Jesus does here, right just here in chapter one, is he doesn't reject the earthly vocation of these men. He just reorients it. Jesus calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John to become, and I love this, fishers of people, right? And, and, and some of us may go, what a great turn of phrase. Jesus is so witty, he's so quick. And maybe he is, it's a play on their vocation, but did you know that Jesus is not being original in what he's saying here? This image wasn't new or unique to Jesus. The picture of fishermen as instrumental to the inbreaking of God's reign goes all the way back to the writings of Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, and Ezekiel. For example, in Ezekiel 47, this will blow your mind, a picture of a river is given to Ezekiel. It's this river that Ezekiel sees flowing out of God's kingdom. And whatever this river touches brings life. It brings things to life. And Ezekiel describes in this picture seeing fishermen fishing from many kinds. The implication being not just Israelites, but people from all nations being caught up in the stream of God's reign. So what Jesus is doing here with Simon, Andrew, James, and John is affirming their former work as an image of the new role to which he is calling them. What Jesus is inviting his followers to do is to participate in the kingdom work that he's doing of bringing people to him. That's always been God's purpose. It's from the very beginning to the very end. It's always been God's purpose to redeem his broken, fractured creation through the proclamation of the gospel that's stewarded by ordinary people. Don't miss this. It's ordinary people in seemingly ordinary places, which is how God seeks to do the work of the kingdom. Our entire Bible is filled with stories of ordinary people in ordinary situations. They're not the people that you would normally expect that God would work through. The problem is we have so elevated them that we've made them into super extraordinary people when the entire point of why God chose them and put them before us was not to separate them from us, but to say to us, that's you. That's you. You're no different. I can use you. I can work through you. And guess what? I want to. I purpose to. Come follow me. And when you understand, when you truly understand that you were created for a purpose, that you have a destiny, when you truly understand that you're not on the bench, everyone gets to play, that God has a plan and a purpose and, and desires significance for everyone, it changes you. And that's why for these men, their only response to Jesus' call is total dedication. The only response when you suddenly realize, you see your destiny in front of you, you realize that significance lies with this person, with this path. The only thing you can do, and it's what they do, is you put down what you're planning. You leave your hometown and you put your career to work for the kingdom by following Jesus. What other response can there be? What other response can there be? Some of us have been burned before in partnerships. You ever been in a partnership before? Some of us have been burned and we like to work solo because partnerships don't work. Others of us have been waiting all their lives to partner, to collaborate with someone. Do we understand that the creator of the universe is inviting us to partner with him? He wants to partner with us. 
And he wants to to work in and through us. What other response can there be when you encounter that kind of invitation? What other response could the disciples make to this guy who in the stories that we're going to come to next will not only cast out evil spirits, heal sick people, cleanse lepers, cause paralytics to walk, forgive sins, heal a withered hand, walk on water, calm a storm, and feed 5,000 people with just a few pieces of bread and fish? How do you not follow that? Who are you going to follow? Beloved, Mark's story of Jesus, and it's all about Jesus' call to follow him, just raises two questions for us. The first question is, what are we willing to leave behind for Jesus? The second question is in many ways an inversion of the first. What are we unwilling to give up for Jesus? I actually think that discipleship is lived out between those two questions. Discipleship is lived out between the two questions. What are we willing to give up, willing to leave behind for Jesus, and what are we unwilling to give up for Jesus? Beloved, as we sit here this morning, how is Jesus trying to reorient today your sense of identity, your understanding of your value and your worth? How is our Heavenly Father seeking to reveal his grace, his mercy, his love, his truth, all these things we sing about and we celebrate? How is he seeking to reveal those things of his reign through you, through where you specifically are, through what you have access to, and only you, through what you have been resourced with when is the last time you understood Jesus' call that way where are you where is Jesus in the midst of where you are because you see beloved Jesus is still in the fishing business and we are still called to be in the following business the catching business the feeding business fascinating insight Jesus' first words thanks to Mark the first words that are recorded to Simon Peter So there's an intentionality here. First words to Simon Peter are, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Jesus' last words to Peter in the gospels that we have, last recorded words to Peter, do you remember what they are? Feed my sheep. Follow me. From beginning to end, this is the invitation. This is the challenge of discipleship. This is the grand, grand and glorious vision and mission of the church to catch people and to feed them. What do we need to leave behind to follow Jesus? What do we need to leave behind? What plans of our own need to stay here today? What expectations of others do you need to bring when you come up for communion later and leave them at the foot of the cross? What marks of achievement or success that the world declares or you've declared or others have declared do you need to say, I'm done with that, I'm leaving that behind because what I'm called to is the kingdom. And I may not even know what those achievements and those successes are, but we're going to find out in Mark. What are those marks? What fears of failure or rejection do you need to leave behind? Things in the past that have happened where you've failed or you've been rejected and that is keeping you from moving forward. Or maybe nothing has happened and you're just afraid of what could happen and so you're not moving forward. What do you need to leave behind to follow Jesus? I want to be clear in asking these questions. I want to be honest with you. The call to follow Christ is always costly. It is not without sacrifice. I don't want anyone not to hear that this morning. It is not inherently easy. It is costly. And it is costly because it asks us to follow wherever Christ leads. And we don't always know where Jesus is going to take us. 
But beloved, the call to follow Christ is costly, but it's also gracious. It's gracious because it always leads us to the life that God intends for us. Jesus is calling each one of us to do something significant. Not some of us, all of us. You have no idea of how you have been, how you can be, how you are being used, worked through. God wants to show you. God wants you to partner. God wants you to participate. It might be hard. It might involve effort. It might even involve suffering. We may have to give up something good. I want to acknowledge that. We may have to give up something great. But with Jesus, wherever and whatever he leads us to will always be something better. The call to follow Jesus is gracious because the one who calls us is gracious. And answering that call always leads us closer to him. Beloved, Jesus' desire is to be with us. Jesus' desire is not to just send us off on our own. Jesus' greatest desire is not the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom is Jesus' desire to be with each one of us. He doesn't just come to instruct us. Jesus doesn't just come to download information to us and move on. And if I can say that, that's oftentimes in our modern world the distinction between a Christian and a disciple. We think we get downloaded this information from Jesus. Jesus tells us what we need to know. We write it down. We put it in our pocket. We save it for for later usage. And we move on. Jesus wants to be with us. He wants to come alongside us. Jesus desires to work with us, in and through us, to draw us into deeper places of awareness of his character and presence in our lives. Jesus wants to draw us into deeper awareness of who we are, who we were created to be. Don't forget. Look right back down at it. Mark chapter 1. Jesus doesn't promise these men they're going to merely fish. That's what I love about this. He doesn't promise them they're going to merely fish. They're already fishermen. Jesus assures them they're going to be catchers reconcilers, redeemers, lifesavers, catchers of men. And beloved, they didn't become such persons on their own. Jesus was with them. Down the road of discipleship, as one opportunity after another in the daily life course of the lives of these guys provided them with the opportunity to become agents of salvation, conduits of blessing, hands of healing. They didn't do such work in their strength or by their own power. Jesus was with them. And as these first followers of Christ are eventually going to be accused of turning the known world upside down, a bunch of fishermen and a couple of tax collectors, ordinary people, ordinary Joes, just like you and me, accused of radically changing the way people think and act, the aftershocks, by the way, of what we're still feeling today, they will not be abandoned in their persecution, their imprisonment, or their suffering. Jesus will be with them. As many of them face suffering, face their deaths, They held on to the very reality that we are sitting here today, that we would still be here, that Christ would still be present. Because, beloved, this is the message of the church. To this day, until tomorrow, Jesus hasn't left the building. Jesus hasn't left us or this world. So come, follow me, Jesus says. Jesus continues to call each of us every day by name, Come follow me, insert your name. Come follow me, Jack. Come follow me, Linda. Come follow me, Carl. Come follow me, George. Come follow me. Come follow me. It's an incredible privilege to hear that call, not generically, but with your name at the end of it. Jack Dirks, come follow me. Ralph Clark, come follow me. 
Jesus continues to call each of us by name. And Mark's gospel is a gospel of immediately. Now is the time. When Jesus shows up, when Jesus is calling, it's as we learned last week, a kairos moment. K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos moment. It's a time for decision. It's a time to either stay in the boat or to embrace the invitation and challenge of stepping into our destiny as children of our Heavenly Father, as followers of Christ, as ambassadors of his kingdom. Because, beloved, there is a difference between a fan and a follower. There is a difference between a spectator and a part of the team. There is a difference between a consumer and an investor. And there is a difference today between being a Christian and being a disciple of Christ. Together. Together. May we answer the call to be disciples of Christ as we follow our leader. Let us not hold on to the temporary things of this world. Let us not confuse the blessings of our lives, our families and our work with the calling, the purpose of our lives, which is to be agents of the grace, faith, hope, and love of the kingdom. Let us go where Jesus leads, trusting that that which lies before us with him will be greater than whatever we must leave behind. Amen? Amen. Amen.